Today, we take a look at the real unsung hero in the world of spaceflight, the Gemini program. Yeah, too often ignored behind Apollo, but today we're attempting to readdress the balance a little bit. What was your favorite Gemini moment? Let us know your thoughts at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And please do hit the share button if you're enjoying what we're doing right now. But right now, it's time for another episode of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Dave Giles. And I'm Emily Carney, and welcome to another episode of Space and Things Podcast. We recorded this a while back just in case we couldn't record another episode for whatever reason, but that doesn't mean we don't think this is a subject worth covering. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, it's been great knowing that we've had this episode in the bank for when we really needed it, because this week we get to talk about something we absolutely love, the Gemini program. Okay, relax, everything's okay. The Gemini program, or the Gemini program, uh, people do <laughs> people do pronounce it differently, I noticed, and that is fine. Uh, we're not... That includes me and you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> includes us. Uh, we're not... There's no particular club of uh, which is right or which is wrong, so we'll, we'll just stick to that. So the Gemini program ran from 1961 to 1966 and was NASA's second human spaceflight program. The obvious upgrade from the Mercury program was the addition of a second astronaut... But the objective of the program was to develop the skills needed for the Apollo program, which had the goal of landing a man on the moon. This included endurance, rendezvous, docking, and extravehicular activities or spacewalks. The two-person capsule was launched on top of a Gemini Titan II <laughs> rocket, which was just an intercontinental ballistic missile modified to carry the spacecraft. Similar to the Mercury program, the astronauts were literally strapping themselves to the top of a missile. There were two uncrewed missions at the start of the program, Gemini 1, which was an orbital flight which took place in April 1964, and a suborbital mission in January 1965 to test the heat shield. Then followed 10 crewed missions from 23rd of March 1965 to 15th of November 1966. And that will be our focus today. Emily, I can't, you may correct me here, the shuttle may have done it, but 10 missions in that time frame is ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think in 1985, I, I could be wrong because I'm, I'm doing this from my memory. I think in 1985, over a year, they flew, I think, 11 missions or so. Right. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think um, I'm doing this from memory, but um, the Gemini program, yeah, they flew a ton of missions within less than two years, <laughs> about a, 18 months, really. And not only that, this was really the time in spaceflight, not just US spaceflight, but just in spaceflight in general, where we really advanced just everything. I mean, they figured out how to rendezvous and dock and they figured out how to do spacewalks and they figured out a lot of the stuff we needed to do to get to the moon, which is incredible. I, I want to say this is the point where we really outpaced the, the Soviets at the time. I think back then the concern was, you know, how do we know that the Russians aren't beating us, you know, to the to get to the moon and I think by Gemini 6 and 7, when there was the rendezvous in space, I think that was the point where it was like, we kind of overtook them. You know? <laughs> I feel like 
God, I could talk about this forever. We could have like an eight hour episode on this. Um, I feel like Gemini is so underrated and it to me it's it is like one of the most incredible test programs of all time. I, I don't think people understand that that whole two years was really just a sequent like sequential steps and just every mission was like a test flight because they were doing stuff on each mission that just hadn't been done before. And it yeah. was just every mission got a little more ambitious. If you, you know, if you look at Gemini three, you know, it's, it's pretty basic, you know, let's do a few orbits and try to use a computer to change orbits and stuff like that. It seems pretty basic, but at the time that was a big deal. And then by the next mission, there was a spacewalk. I mean, that to me is like, what? That is like a huge, like leap into like the future. Almost. I think it's just, really cool and i'm always blown away by the fact that they used a modified icbm to launch people on it yeah i know right it's crazy <laughs> if you're ever in a museum that has both a mercury capsule and a gemini capsule you can see the advancement visibly with your eyes looking in the cockpit there's the, the the technology had improved so much in such a short space of time as well yeah i mean they were designing in mercury in the, in the late 50s but the last Mercury mission ended on 63, and then within two years, you've got this. And that's just absolutely amazing. So, Emma, um, we'll, we'll go through this sequentially. You, you've just mentioned that, that Gemini 3 there was uh, a short mission. What, it just did a few orbits and then came down, and it was Gus Grissom and, and John Young. And that, this is where we get the first of the records. Gus Grissom becomes the first person to go into space twice, although his first flight was just suborbital. He still held that accolade, the first person to go into space twice. The Gemini capsule was called the Gusmobile, right? He was yeah. so integral in designing it and, and part of the engineering phase of that. So it was great that he got to, to go on that first mission. They did kind of build it around him, which is funny because he was one of the smaller astronauts. He was a little bigger than I am. I've seen some of his clothes and I'm like, oh my God, I could fit into that. That's in that's crazy to me. Yeah. I think for Stafford, they had to put like something in there because Stafford was like six feet tall. So I think yeah. they had to do a modification to get him in there, which is crazy to me because oh, wow. think about being like six feet tall and being strapped in there. I'm not a claustrophobic person, but I think I would be like... <gasps> I don't know. I'm not I'm not tall. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine tall because I've always been five one most of my life, but very confined spaces. We'll just put it that way. Yeah, for sure. So, so Gemini three managed three orbits. Uh, and of course, they got in trouble for the corned beef sandwich, <laughs> uh, which is an amazing story. Yes. Young pulled out a, a corned beef sandwich to eat. And of course, they then were panicked down on the ground about the crumbs. Um, and, and it now resides in the Gus Grissom memorial museum in his hometown of mitchell indiana you've been there right you know i'm embarrassed to admit this i have not and i need to oh i thought you did it yeah they have an event um i think once a year i don't know if they had it last year because of covid and i don't know if they're having it this year but they uh usually have an event called the galactic gathering which gathers like indiana based astronauts like like joe allen and charlie walker yeah. and people like that and I know that's like part of the event, I think, is the museum. And I would love to go there. I've been meaning to, and I, I need to fix that. It's just a small little museum, but it's a great museum. Um, so, yeah, let's move on. You're right. You then move on to Gemini 4, which was two and a half months later. And it's a four-day mission and includes a spacewalk. To me, it's crazy because um, Gemini 4 is when they really started trying to like do things that hadn't 
really been tried yet. Before the spacewalk, I believe they tried to rendezvous with a, a spent Gemini stage. Actually, and Andy Chaikin gave me the best explanation of this, and I cannot replicate it, but go look up the McDivitt Quadrant, and that gives a good explanation of why he wasn't able to rendezvous with the spent Gemini stage. Uh, it's not really for lack of skill. His skill, it was more, they hadn't quite worked out orbital mechanics yet. They didn't quite make it, but of course we know that later, you know, McDivitt and company didn't have a problem rendezvousing on, on Apollo 9. Absolutely. They'd figured it out by that point. And uh, yeah, it was the first long duration mission, if you consider it that. It's four, four days, but at that time, that was a big deal. They didn't know what would happen to them physically, you know, and... I talked to Jim McDivitt a few years ago because I was like, how high up were you guys on Gemini 4? Because the photos, they just, it looks like like Ed White could just like surf on the the surface of the ocean almost. And he was like, ah, but we were about 100 miles up. So that mission, you know, even though they didn't meet all their objectives and I don't want, I'm not being critical there. I'm just being more like they were really just testing a lot of stuff out and they didn't know a lot of stuff. That was a big leap forward, you know, and like, okay, we did four days in space. Now let's do even more time in space. Do you want to know the other fun fact about that mission? I'm sure you know this already. Yeah. What is it? It was the first time that Mission Control was in Houston. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they'd moved it. Um, It, it was in, uh, I believe, Florida, the Mercury Flight Control Center. And then the next mission, two and a half months later, they then try and do a whole week uh, and this was the first ever week-long flight. This was Gemini 5 with Gordon Cooper as uh, the commander and Pete Conrad as the pilot. I can't imagine the two of them together in that tiny, tiny capsule. I mean, that must have been fun. Oh, my God. That's an interesting crew. Like, I wouldn't have put them together. They spent eight days up there. I'm, I'm sure by the end, Pete wanted to jump out of there. You know, and just just get out of there. But that that was the longest long duration mission up to that point. Yeah, the first time America got a record because obviously that the Ed White spacewalk wasn't the first spacewalk; it was the first American spacewalk. Exactly. But this was the first time where in the space race America moved ahead slightly. You know, eight days, and that was a big deal back then because you know this was before. Apollo moon missions. This was before Skylab and all that. You know, they had no idea what would happen to people's bodies in space back then. No idea. So it was a big deal. And of course, they came back perfectly fine. Were they not just like running on fumes at the end as well? They had like the wrong power or something like that. So they basically turned everything off for the last day. It seemed to be a Gordon Cooper trick. He did the same on his yeah. Mercury mission, I think, as well. I would die. I'd be like, I've had enough. Just get us back home. This is why I'm not an astronaut because I would have been like, all right. You know, we got no shower up here. Yeah, we all stink. Which brings us to the next missions. Yeah, exactly. So that, they called Gemini 5 eight days or bust was what uh, what Cooper and Conrad were, were trying to achieve. But when we skip Gemini 6, and we'll get to that in a moment, Gemini 7 was the next to launch. And this, again, is only a few months later. It's now in early December. So August to December. And they go from doing eight days on Gemini 5 to 14 days. We have Borman as commander, Lovell as the pilot. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Lovell ended up in his pants. Sorry, in his underwear. Uh, in UK, we call them pants, obviously. They stripped <laughs> right down. It was smelly. These Gemini capsules are tiny. Yeah. They couldn't go anywhere. And they, these guys didn't do a spacewalk. So they literally didn't open the doors. They were there 
two weeks. I can't imagine it. I've toured in buses and you get out at the end of your journey or you have stops at service stations and all that kind of stuff. Even that can be horrendous. Two weeks going nowhere. I can't imagine it. Yeah. It's usually been compared to being in the in the cab of like a Volkswagen Beetle or something like that. It's very small interiors. You know, there's there's a reason why a lot of the earlier astronauts were smaller, you know? So, yeah, they had to spend two weeks in there. And God bless them for doing that. I think the joke that they both had coming out was they were going to announce that they got engaged, <laughs> which is hysterical. I, I love seeing the video of them walking out on the flight deck of the recovery ship. They look like kids with a load in their diaper, like they could barely walk, you know, but that was a success and it, it showed that we could go to the moon and back. The reason why Gemini 7 jumped ahead was because there was a launch failure of Gemini 6, right? And we've talked about this before on the podcast. Uh, so Gemini 6 was, was due to launch and then <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, it just stayed there. <laughs> It, the the engine lit and it didn't go anywhere and it shut down straight away. And amazingly, Wally Shearer, who was the commander, did not pull the abort switch, which means they could reload a lot quicker than they, they would have done if he'd, uh, if he'd pulled that. And that blows my mind. But the, yeah. the idea of Gemini 6 was it was supposed to be the first rendezvous uh, in space, right? They were targeting an Agena. Is it called Agena? Is, I always say Agena. Is Agena. that the right pronunciation? Yeah, yeah. yeah Agena. Which is a separate rocket that was launching also on, on a Titan missile and they were trying to just go and see if they can find it. Can you meet up with another object in space? But the Agena failed as well. So this was ha supposed to happen in October and they were trying to figure out how they do it and they went, well, Gemini 7's going up. Why don't we just try and put them both them up at the same time and have the two of them rendezvous? And as a result of it, the first rendezvous in space was these two crewed spacecraft together. And there's some great photos of them taking photos of each other and holding up little signs. Yeah. Was it Go, Go Navy, I think, was or, or, or Army Beat Navy or something like that. There was something to do with that. I think it was Beat Army. Those, those photos just blow my mind because I'm like, that is so cool that they were able to, you know, rendezvous and really do like some very fine maneuvering around each other. You know, it really showed the maneuverability of the Gemini capsule it was kind of like the fighter jet of spacecraft but yeah they've been dealing with some issues for gemini 6 and finally they just decided well let's just have them rendezvous together so we can kill sort of two objectives it's just dawned on me as well that the, the challenge of having two missions at once gemini 6 was only up for for one day that was at the same time, they had two different versions of Mission Control, one on top of the other, right? I'm assuming they were using both of them at that point, which is it's pretty crazy. And, I, and maybe they, they learned a few things from that about communicating with two different spacecraft at once, which was essential for the moon as well. But that was a brand new thing then. You know, they'd always been able to focus on one, and now they had two different spacecraft up that they had to focus on. I hadn't thought about that being a, another thing they had to do. Yeah, having to communicate and control two different... or monitor two different spacecraft because yeah during apollo they also had the same thing you know you have the command module and the lunar module which are separated you know after a certain point so you have to learn how to deal with you know integrated spacecraft operations and then you have to learn how to deal with separate ones you know so that was i think also a key objective of gemini was to figure out how to do that in sort of an orderly fashion. My other fun fact about Gemini 6, Emily, it was, it was the first time musical instruments were played in space. Yeah, they played jingle bells up there. Yeah, on a harmonica, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, and some small bells. Yeah. So it was obviously because it was Christmas. I love that. Yeah. It's a fun thing to listen to. Right. So then moving on. So that was December. The two missions in December 1965. And then we have three months off. <laughs> Just three <laughs> months off before Gemini 8 when, when Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott went up. Uh, now they had a four-day mission planned, but it got cut short because of an emergency. But they still managed to set a record before we'll get on to the, uh, the the emergency. So this was the first time they didn't just rendezvous, they docked uh, with another space vehicle. And this time it was Nagina, the Agena target vehicle. They absolutely docked with it, which is really, again, you've gone from never doing a rendezvous, struggling to do a rendezvous on a Gemini 4 less than a year earlier to rendezvous in, in December to docking in March. I mean, it's crazy how quick this progress went. Yeah, and Neil Armstrong was the person uh, at the driver's seat for docking it. You know, obviously, Scott was helping as well, but everything was going great. And they were excited that the docking had gone so beautifully and stuff, and then all hell breaks loose like an hour later. So for those who don't know, I'm sure many of you do. You've all probably seen it. It's been in lots of films now. A thruster was stuck, and uh, it caused the spacecraft to topple over, end over, end over, end. And eventually Armstrong had to turn on the uh, entry thrusters, the re-entry thrusters, in order to get that under control, which means they had to then do an emergency landing. And miles away from where they were supposed to, took them a long time to get picked up. But the processes worked. He was able to get it under control, and the emergency processes actually worked, which is really important. And I suppose that was obviously another key function that they didn't intend to figure out, but they did. Which is good, I suppose. Yeah, management of the first emergency in space, which I, I wish it... I mean, obviously, I'm sure nobody there wish it had happened, you know, but I think Dave Scott said something once, and not to take away from Dave's role during that mission at all, but um, he said something like once, like, I was very lucky to be flying with Armstrong that day. It's been speculated that, you know, Armstrong's thinking may have contributed to him being considered for the first lunar landing because he was so quick thinking, very calm. He just got him out of that. Another fun fact is I believe Scott was supposed to do an EVA during that yeah, he was. mission as well. And he was supposed to wear sort of like a jet pack as well. Sort of like a, kind of like a, I think the AMU, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen pictures of him practicing with it, but we'll never know if it would have worked or not because it did not happen. But don't worry, Dave Scott gets to do some EVAs later in his career, so... It's okay. Yeah, he's, he's all right. <laughs> he's okay. He's all right. Um, do you know the, the other thing that I always think that, that Gemini 8 uh, highlights is the communication situation at that time? Yeah. When they started spinning, they couldn't communicate with Houston. They were on their own. They had no communication with the ground. They were on their own. It, they then ended up back in a communication area. Uh, and you forget that uh, with, with all of this. And I know this went right up to... Mid eighties, they sorted out. I was in the nineties before they had Tedris go up. They still had ground stations in the eighties. So yeah, you had blind areas, blind spots where you couldn't communicate. Yeah, then even during Skylab, like I always have to tell myself when I talk to like people. Of course, I mentioned Skylab in a Gemini episode, um, <laughs> right? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> but um, yeah, even during the Skylab program, you think, well, it's almost you know a dec, almost a decade later. You know, it's probably seven or eight years later. They were still very much restricted by ground stations. You know, they had to wait to get into a certain area to talk to ground control about stuff, you know, and I, I don't know if I'd say primitive, but yeah, we were limited by communications for a really long time. Okay, Jiminy 8, uh, we have TM solid. You're looking good. 
Nine. Moving on, just a few months later, you got Gemini Nine, and I think Gemini Nine is the only one that didn't set any records. I think I may have that wrong. Yeah, uh, Sternin did a spacewalk from hell, and they did. I believe they did rendezvous with a Gemini uh, vehicle, but the the payload shroud did not come off. So you have the angry alligator picture. So. That that was kind of a frustrating mission in a lot of ways, and unfortunately, it has kind of a tragic backstory because uh, the original crew, C and Bassett, died in a plane crash, which is horrible, and I won't get too much into it. It's really a, a very sad story. They got rotated to Prime, Stafford and Cernan, and they did have a successful mission, but if you read a, uh, The Last Man on the Moon and watch the documentary Last Man on the Moon... I'm not somebody who freaks out easily, but I was like feeling panicked during the parts when they were, he was talking about the spacewalk. I could feel it in my chest. I was like, oh my God, that's not a criticism of Cernan in any way. They just didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. They hadn't figured out how to train for EVAs yet. If you look at a lot of the early um, footage of EVA training for Gemini, they're doing it on the ground or they're Mm. doing it on zero G planes and will find out later that that's really not the optimal environment for training people on how to do spacewalks. I, I guess the record they had is, is probably the first backup crew stepping into it as a prime crew. Yes. They probably don't want to be that record, but alas, they are. Yeah. I, I tell you what I like about what they've done at Kennedy Space Center where uh, the capsule is. I like that when you look at it through a window, they've got a hologram of Gene floating around it and, and they, they go into the struggles he had and they have a little hologram Gene t- talking through it as well. Um, and then you walk around the other side and you just see it normally. But that's a really cool exhibit of, of explaining exactly what that spacecraft was used for and and the struggles they had on that mission. I thought it was a really good exhibit. That's in the uh, Astronaut Hall of Fame at Kennedy Space Center. Absolutely, yeah. It's a nice little exhibit they got there. And six weeks later, we have Gemini 10. Again, this time scale is yeah. crazy. Uh, and, and John Young takes command, and he's got Mike Collins joining him. Right? That's like the dream crew of all time. <laughs> like, there are dream crews, and then I'm like, they put Young and Collins together. That's like, oh my God. Like, that's like, you. that's a poster. Like, that's a poster on a bedroom <laughs> wall right there. That was a freaking incredible mission, and nobody talks about it. Agreed. Why? There should be, like, whole books dedicated to it. First of all, they rendezvoused with two different spacecraft, uh, the Agena vehicle, and they rendezvoused with Gemini 9s. Or not Gemini 9, I'm sorry, Gemini 8. Gemini 8. Yeah, they're, um, mm. uh, they didn't dock with the Gemini 8 target vehicle, but they, they rendezvoused with it. And uh, I believe Mike Collins, while they were docked to their target vehicle he did a fairly useful eva i think he did get kind of exhausted but it wasn't as bad as the previous eva but they still had a lot to learn what i like about this is he's the first person to transfer from one space vehicle to another space vehicle because he jumped across from gemini to the agena what they docked to so uh yeah he got a record there uh that was a first but also they were the first time the agena used its own engine to change their, their speed, yep. which is the first time that had happened as well. They docked and the Gina then pushed them the other way, uh, which is <laughs> really quite something yeah. as well. There are pictures of that um, and they're really cool to look at even to this day. I mean, they look like something from the future, but it's from the mid 60s. So it's really cool. I love in the movie Apollo 11. Of course, Mike Collins would later fly as command module pilot on Apollo 11. You know, the little vignettes they have when they introduce the astronauts. Yeah. 
and they show Mike on Jiminy 10. I'm like, that is, I love how they sort of set the scene. Like this is what he did before. And I'm like, I love that little part in the film. That's so cool. But yeah, there needs to be a whole movie about Jiminy 10. Just, (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know why I love that mission. I love that they put young and Collins together. You wouldn't think that works out because young is very quiet and sort of taciturn and, and Collins of course is Mike Collins, but it worked out beautifully. I mean, a very, very awesome mission. I, I love all of the Gemini missions, mainly because that I just think that era was so exciting because they did so much during that time. But um, that that mission is just so damn cool. That's all I got to say. Two months later, once again, <laughs> we're, we're on to this short timeline again. Gemini 11 takes off uh, with Pete Conrad now uh, in command with his buddy Dick Gordon uh, as the pilot. A three-day mission, and it still holds a record. So this is the only one that still has uh, a current record. The altitude with the apogee of 739.2 nautical miles, which is still the highest apogee of an orbiting spacecraft with humans on it to this day, which is quite something. Until possibly later this year. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I think we'll talk about that later on. Let's talk about it later, yeah. That was a successful mission. They used the Agena uh, that they're docked to to uh, boost their apogee that high. And Dick Gordon also did a 33-minute EVA. And yeah. two stand up, two hour stand up EVAs, so two EVAs as well, which is quite something that often gets ignored. Yeah, he did get an EVA in his in his career, which is nice, but it, it was still a challenge for him. And not to criticize Dick Gordon, but they weren't training right for EVAs at that point, you know, because they just didn't know how to until the next mission. And now we'll get onto it. The final crew Gemini mission, or the final mission of the Gemini program, which took place on the 11th to the 15th of November, 1966. It was a four-day mission, and uh, Jim Lovell was commanding, and Buzz Aldrin was the pilot. They rendezvoused and docked with an Agena, and they kept stationed with it, and they did that manually as well. Buzz was uh, Dr. Rendezvous, as he loves being called. Yes. Apparently he would bore you to tears with talking about <laughs> rendezvous at a party and how to do it. But yeah, he used a sextant, the old ways of doing things, and they managed to get them to rendezvous. Yeah, there's some really cool pictures from that mission. I think he had a, a beat army sign or something while he was doing the EVA. <laughs> no, he didn't have a beat army sign. He had a beat Navy sign because he's in the Air Force. My bad. I knew he did something to piss off the Navy. <laughs> Thanks, Buzz. I would have loved that. Yeah, right? I would have left his ass out there. I would have been like, see, I'm cutting <laughs> your, you off. But uh, no, nah, I'm kidding. But um, I'm not kidding, actually. But nah. <laughs> but say what you want to say about him. Buzz Aldrin is incredibly intelligent. He's one of the people who figured out that really a, the optimal way to train for uh, EVAs would be uh, in, you know, in the water with the neutral buoyancy. So they assembled a tank and stuff, and that that's how he trained for that EVA. And once he got into space, he uh, found out that re- worked remarkably well. And that really became the gold standard for EVAs for the rest, pretty much the rest of NASA's history. Uh, even nowadays, that's kind of become a gold standard since Gemini 12, which really, you know, showed that if we use this training technique of neutral buoyancy, we can have people trained enough that they know how to react and they can research and develop how to better do spacewalks. And I mean, they didn't just, just prove this. They smashed it. Absolutely. You go from some small EVAs to this one, which was five hours and 30 minutes. Yeah. He was outside and was fine. 
Whereas you you think of Gene Cernan's Gemini 9 spacewalk, which was a nightmare, and he wasn't outside for that long. It was two hours, and yeah. he was exhausted. And then five hours, 30, and Buzz was absolutely fine yeah. and achieved all of his objectives. I mean, that's really quite something. There's a massive difference there in just six months as well, June to November. Yeah. Five months. And you think about it, less than two years earlier, there'd never been an EVA before, ever. Yeah, exactly. No EVAs. yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, in Ed White's first EVA, if you watch the film of it, he's it's very simple. He's out there not very long and he's uh He's hanging out. He's not doing any experiments, he's not doing anything, you know, he's not doing anything outside of the spacecraft, he's not doing maintenance, he's basically just testing it. He basically comes yeah. out goes out and comes back in. I think he tried using that uh zip gun he had, the thruster gun, but it didn't work well. Basically, at the Gemini program, they just started out like, okay, we're just going to go outside and see what happens. And then it went to, in less than two years, you had somebody out there for five hours. And achieving things as well, actually getting things done. Yeah, so Gemini was really... Uh, it's, it's hard to sum it up for me because I love it so much. There is um, there is an excellent NASA book about the Gemini program, and it's it has an amazing title. Uh, I'm sure you've read it, Dave. It's called On the Shoulder of Titans. Yeah, <laughs> great name. That for is book, like isn't it? the best book ever, uh, <laughs> title ever. And I know that David Shaler and Colin Burgess have probably written about it a lot. But other than that, I can't think of, and I might be missing something, I can't think of any non space history, like mainstream authors. Andy Chaikin wrote about it a little bit in The Man on the Moon, but more kind of to introduce you to Apollo, you know? But I can't think of, um, God, a lot of mainstream books that really talk about that program, be, you know, and it's sad because to me, that's like one of the best test programs of all time because you just, um, oh my God, now people are going to be like, Emily, just shut up. But I was talking to Al Warden once, as you do, you know, I was talking to Al Warden a few years back and he was talking about, you know, people don't talk about Gemini program, but it was really one of the most ambitious test programs of all time. Because every mission had a milestone you had to achieve to get to the next step. And I never really thought about it like that before. And the way I look at Gemini, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo now is I look at them all as test missions. Because they were really yeah. just going from one thing, like even like the later Apollo missions, if you look at 15, okay, we can drive a moon car. 16, yeah. we can drive a moon car for a bit longer. And 17, we drove it the longest. You know, it really changed my sort of how I thought about those programs. It's it just, you know, one long test program, but uh, it's almost like science fiction to me that they achieved all those things in the mid-1960s because you look at, you know, computers back then were nothing. Yeah. For the time, they were sophisticated. Yeah, I think Jiminy also was the first spacecraft with a computer on it. I don't think it was a digital computer, but I think it was the first spacecraft that had a computer. Yeah, I'm done blathering on. I think I just, <laughs> I just, I just love this program so much. It's also a beautiful rocket as well. It, it just looks so great. I love it. Yeah, if you've been to Kennedy Space Center and you've seen the Gemini Titan II rocket, it's just gorgeous. It, when the sun hits it, it's like shiny and stuff. It's very aesthetically pleasing. I've never talked to anybody about the ride on it, but I've been told it was a sporty ride. Five minutes to orbit and it's a missile. There's a whole other episode we're going to do about what could have happened to the Gemini program and what could have happened to the Gemini spacecraft, how it could have been developed. There were plans made. It just didn't happen. 
And I think it's possibly some of the great lost space programs are definitely what could have happened with Gemini. I think that's another aspect which we're definitely going to have to cover another time, Emily, because I think it's really important. Yeah, we need to discuss it because Gemini was really a versatile little vehicle. It was very maneuverable and they had plans for it beyond, you know, the two year program. And I, I feel like it's almost a shame that it wasn't utilized for other things because we laugh about, oh, it was really tiny inside, but it really could have done a lot of work. Talking of the rocket, by the way, there's a beautiful, uh, I think it's a replica at, at the Kansas Cosmosphere, and they've got it kind of on a launch pad, and you can stand underneath it. It's really cool. Awesome. It's a really cool exhibit. Uh, if you ever get down there, that's that's definitely worth checking out. Anyway, I, I hope people have got a bit of our excitement for this program, because it really is just the best. The best. Gemini Titan 2 had the best launch startup sound ever in the world, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Amazing sound. My favorite part in the movie First Man is the Gemini launch, because I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, my God, they got it right. Awesome. Yeah. And, and obviously, as we mentioned earlier, we'll briefly bring it up now. That one record that Gemini still has active at the moment, the uh, Apache record, may get beaten later this year with the Polaris program, which we mentioned briefly when it was announced. Jared Isaacman, uh, who was the commander of and, and the guy who purchased the inspiration for SpaceX Dragon capsule and, and made that mission happen. He's at it again and he's got another mission going up. And that was a high orbit. That was, I think that was one of the highest orbits since Gemini, uh, Gemini 11. But this time he wants to beat it. He wants to get higher than they did on Gemini. So even now, you know, that, that would be uh, coming up to 56 years later, that record is finally going to hopefully get beaten. Right. I think Pete and Dick would be happy to see it getting beaten, honestly. I think they would be like, well, it's about time that somebody did it. I think during that mission, they're going to try to do an EVA as well. And SpaceX is actually designing EVA suits. And it's really cool because in the Polaris mission and some of their like literature and some of their um, marketing on social media, their branding, they've referenced the Gemini program. And I couldn't be happier about that. I think that's marvelous. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's a great thing that they've got coming up. I'm looking forward to it. So that's it for this week. Hopefully, whatever stopped us from doing the podcast normally this week will be resolved by next week. Uh, most likely, I'll be back from a, another holiday, which I seem to have. Uh, and we'll <laughs> be back with a full update on all the news from the world of spaceflight. But we hope you enjoyed our look at the Gemini program. Yes, and thank you to those who continue to hit the share button. Uh, the free marketing is massively appreciated, <laughs> yeah, as, we, <laughs> as we still have not figured out a marketing budget. So nope. <laughs> it's zero, by the way. Um, anyway, don't forget in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>